Anne, do you know how to ask for Dhammata? Andrew? No. Tina? No. Uh, Jane? No. Jared? No. Um, Russell? Did you go for it? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you all year. <laughs> Did you get it? Ramachaloka dipati sahampati Katanjaliana divaramaya chata Santida sata parachaka jatika Ese tu damang anukam pimang pajang Namotasa pakavato arahato sama samputasa Namotasa pakavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputasa Bhutang tamang sankam namasam Don't worry, Anne, I won't ask you again. <laughs> Otherwise you'll never come back. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> we have these traditions that we're trying to establish in North America and uh, there's something very unique about a uh, tradition. The rituals we have, this is different than a, a retreat. Um, it's a, a community that lives by ancient, ancient uh, principles and rituals which go back 2,500 years. So that's why I kind of encourage people to try to learn these things. And, and uh, um, because if when we're the core people here, if we don't learn them, who's going to learn them? And if, if we don't learn them, how is it going to be sustained? I think we all see um, how rich a, a culture uh, Buddhism can be, not just in its aesthetics and its art, but in its uh, communal ways of, of relating to each other, its uh, uh, rituals around uh, death. You know, I've been with, the, with Julie who died uh, the other morning, and uh, then I was with Akka. Was that two years ago? Almost. Almost two years, yeah. So, similar age. Uh, and uh, certainly I always feel that as a monk, that I come into the situation and people are so so incredibly uh, vulnerable. And they let, up, let the sun get into that. And then we have these rituals that, that carry they kind of carry the energy, hold the energy, whatever the way you want to describe that. Um, so, the, the today is the uh, Uposita day, and that's a ritual that is, is, there's something about it, it's just so stable. And it's just like, yeah, we take precepts. Monks, we do Patimoka, the Anagarikas recite there. Uh, eight precepts, the samaneers recite those. We kind of reestablish our uh, our aspiration, our, our, our uh, this, this deep intention we have for liberation. And we do it every fortnight. Yeah, every fortnight. We only 
I, I ordained a few years ago, and we did that once. But each fortnight, uh, we we recollect our our, our in the sangha, our brotherhood, our connection to the laity, our commitment to precepts, uh, our commitment to a way of life which is really very spiritual. It's geared towards uh, letting go and the realization of nibbana. And we do it every fortnight. Every fortnight, every fortnight, and and we don't we don't try to kind of make it fancy, <laughs> you know, like we're going to have violins in next week, or drums maybe in December, or you know we don't. It's not it's not like a, a performance, uh, and it's not like we're trying to entertain anyone to jazz it up in some kind of really clever and, and uh, modern way. But it's just the same old, same old. And the way that works is that, hey, yeah, this is the same old, same old goodness. It's just that. It's stable. Uh, it's not about excitement. It's not about uh, creating really interesting themes about neuroscience and your toenails or whatever you want. <laughs> it's, just, it's just this. It's just the simplicity of stopping, reflecting on basic moral values, coming together as a community, encouraging each other. And, and, that, and that's uh, it's very special. Um, and, and for me, I've been doing Patimoka things for many years, and I always just find it just this lovely coming together of, of a group of men who have made this commitment. I see the robe, I see the commitment to each of us. So, you know, in wh whatever ways we can encourage this as a group, learning chanting, uh, keeping the precepts, um, observing the appointed day, and, and observing this, coming to the sittings, um, these really serve us well. And then when we die, if, if we have the, I would say, good fortune to have a gradual death in that way, I would say there is good fortune, it's painful, and then all those rituals are very powerful. Like if you've been doing chanting or hearing chanting and participating in this, and, and then you're in a semi-comatose state or, or there's, there's a lot of agitation, and then you hear the chanting. The voice, as you remember, and it, 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 it's the association of all that is all that goodness that you've done before, year upon year upon year. And so there's a, it's not just, say, aesthetically beautiful, but it's, it's uh, uh, recalling and recentering, and I think very encouraging, very encouraging that, yeah, this is okay. What we're going through is okay. Um, because when the, when the body's dying and it's falling apart, I suspect it doesn't feel very okay. Certainly it's uh, tremendously uh, uncomfortable and whatever emotions might come out in with that. So how do we, how do we find reassurance uh, in, in situations which are fraught, which are, uh, which are leading to a very uh, difficult seeming endpoint? You have, you have a, a whole body of practice which is enhanced by, by ritual. It can be. It can be done perfunctorily and kind of parrot-like, but if well done, uh, if well considered and, and, and done with sincerity, yeah, I think it brings brings the heart to a sense, even this is okay. 
even dying is okay, because that's natural, that's dharma, there's nothing, there's nothing really wrong about dying. Imagine if we all just lived, it's not possible. So, um, you know, I'm encouraged that people kind of come here, and that you come regularly, um, because I think it will really pay dividends in, in your life, I'm sure it already does. I've been thinking a lot about goodwill because I've just experienced so much goodwill in this past 44 years. Um, but just this last few months, there's been so, so many very good things I've experienced here with the Sangha and with the teaching situations and we have a new piece of land and, and we will have a new car. It's very exciting. My, my parents didn't have a car and I don't even know how to drive, so I think it's an amazing vehicle. But of course that state of mind is kind of youthful and naive. Because <laughs> as I would say, one car, one problem, two cars, two problems. So it's also necessary. But in in the sense of goodness that you know people have enough faith in us to give us the resources to get a new car and have enough faith in what we're doing to um, supply the, the funds for this piece of land. That's, that's very, very encouraging, very encouraging. And so goodwill, you know, and, and uh, goodwill I think is a method, I would say. Generosity is the method, compassion is the method. It's what we do as, as, uh, as in the spiritual path. But that's all very well and good, but what is what happens when you really don't feel terribly kind? When you really look at a person and you, you know you, you don't really like them, or you look at life and you can't give anything because you're so frightened and, and, and uh, or confused or depressed, and how does uh, where does goodwill come in there? How do you deal with that? Well, if you've never done goodwill, then it's going to be harder. But if you have participated in goodwill, if you've done generous acts, um, if you've um, been sensitive to people and helped them, if you've done a lot of that, then when those difficult times come, you do have a body of, of goodness in your mind, you know, a kind of whole treasure uh, of goodness. So it's important to do as much goodness as possible when the conditions allow it. To be as generous as possible, to, to, to live in a way that morally we, uh, we protect ourselves and others. And then having done that when you can't, when, when it just doesn't seem right, not right, but you just can't, you, you know, you just look at someone and you're frightened or look at someone and you dislike them, then I would think that trying to do goodwill there would see it wouldn't work, would it? You know, if I look at someone and I I just feel some aversion to them uh, or I'm frightened of them, to cover that over with some kind of goodwill might work. I might be able to go to goodwill, but oftentimes we can't. We can't because the the power of the kamma now, the power of habit somehow has been triggered by something. And now you're now the practice is much more difficult. But sometimes practice is 
is like you know, you're floating around, you know, your your neuroses are kind of behaving themselves, and, and then you can you know you can really serve and, and do good things. So that we're encouraged to do that a lot. But then those times where where you, you can't shift it, where you know the fear is so strong, or or the uh, loneliness is so strong, or or uh, the aversion is just so uh, entrenched. Uh, that those are very threatening states of mind. Now, as contemplatives, I think most of us don't really believe in them. We might go into the narrative a little bit, and most of us, I would think, rather than really following them, I think we just feel threatened by them because they're so counter to this whole ethos of goodwill this whole movement towards goodwill. And, and when you look at the texts, the, like we've been reading these texts on anger, you just cannot excuse anger in Buddhism. The guy's getting cut by a two-man saw. The Buddha says, if you get cut by a... two guys are cutting you in half, and you're entertaining hatred towards them, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Whoa. That's yeah, really... And then you look at your own anger, and you think, well, no, I'm a real... And I'm hopeless. I can't. I mean, that and then this. I'm just angry at this person. So the the danger is, I would say, perfectionism. I'm reading a book, by the way, <laughs> called Selfie, and it, and it talks about perfectionism. You know, so so in our in our culture, we can have very very strong ideals uh, about what you should be. And then when you become a monk, it's even more difficult about what you should do. So you get these talks about goodwill and metta, and, and it's all very well and good when it's going, but sometimes you just can't do it. You can't do it. And is that right or wrong? It's neither right nor wrong. It's dharma. It's just the dharma of what the heart's doing. And then what, what clicks in, unfortunately, is, is idealism, perfectionism, and a kind of inner tyranny that, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this. And that, that, that's very confusing. So one really has to contemplate that the, 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 the bottom line of Buddhist teaching is not, not even goodwill, it's non-grasping. It's non-attachment. And that's more difficult because the sense of ownership of things like fear or, or aversion or depression or whatever the mind just want, just latches onto them, and there's this huge ownership around them. The language, the narrative, the story, the identity—it's very, very strong. So it's most threatening. It's difficult, and yet, and yet, if one can have enough presence of mind to somehow give this thing space, to have enough presence of mind to not identify with it have enough presence in mind to say, just hang in, it'll change, just hang in, be patient, endure. Any kind of language like that, that is actually much more difficult than goodwill when you're in a good mood. When you're in a good mood, giving a piece of person a cup of tea and offering them praise, that's dead easy. But when some of these haunting energies come up, almost demonic sometimes, the way they come up into the mind, they, they seem so very real. And then idealism, perfectionism, uh, creates a sort of inner tyranny, doesn't it? It shouldn't be this way. It should be different. But that doesn't liberate. That doesn't liberate. 
What liberates is non-grasping. And non-grasping is, is, a, is a skill of letting be, but not believing in the reality of that. And yet it's, it seems so very, very real. And I think the paramount way of doing that is to, to really be very, very diligent in staying in the present moment. Because you see that these, these kind of haunting and difficult energies that might come up um, are, are, are very much fed by memory, very much fed by, by thought based in memory, conditioned by habit. But if you, if you can, rather than try to fix it or get rid of it, first of all, again, I'm assuming we don't believe in the narrative. Right? Most of us have that. Sometimes, sure, we run with the narrative a bit, but if you've been practicing for a few years, that whole storyline narrative, you know, I don't believe you. You kind of get that's kind of Buddhism 101, yeah? Um, but Buddhism 201 is, is this, this capacity to, 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 to have a sense of it belongs, this is natural, this is Dharma, I don't like it, it's Dharma. And then I think... I think the capacity to really, really stay in the present moment. Now, staying in the present moment is, is a very good strategy because it doesn't demand anything about the moment. It's not saying the moment should be good, bad, or indifferent. It should be different. It's not, it's not a judgment about this moment. And that's the problem with idealism and perfectionism that usually, as soon as this comes up, there's a whole cultural... Um, familial conditioning that comes up, bounces on top of that, makes it even more complex. But just, and, and, and one of the things that we talk about that prevents the realization of Dharma is, is uh, what we call Silabhata Paramasa. And Ajahn Sumedho's, I think, very good translation of that is, is uh, it's, it's translated usually as uh, belief in rites and rituals, but cultural conditioning. So if, if, if someone has been raised in a situation where, like, like let's say, what's quite common now in psychology literature, that uh, how women are conditioned to be a certain body size and, and all the rest of it, and then youngsters don't have that and they always feel, already feel inadequate at the age of 12 or something, that's horrible. And that's what we mean by Silabhata Paramasa, this kind of cultural conditioning of what is right and what is wrong, who you should be and who you shouldn't be. Now, Buddhism has a culture of goodness; it has morality, but it doesn't doesn't say that you shouldn't feel anger. It says, don't pursue it, don't dump it on other people, but witness to anger as as a, as a, as a natural phenomenon. How do you get there? How do you get there to that kind of clarity, to that balance, which which can feel rage or something like that and just know that that's dharma, that that's natural. It's really, really hard, isn't it? Theory is easy. So I, I, I would suggest that present moment awareness, if you, if you make that intention, this is what I find helpful, not that I've been too rageful recently, but um, if, you, if you make that intention, it's present moment, what's it like, what's it like? That's not a judgment. You know, it's not... It's not asking that this, this experience, very uncomfortable, be different. And if you can sustain present moment awareness, then you're also sustaining um, 
a, a, a mind which is not caught in the self-narratives, it's not attached. Because that's what attachment basically is. It's the, uh, it's the preoccupation with the self-narratives. And you're not caught with that. And that wants to, that, you know, that wants to happen. Attachment wants to happen because that's the habit. Oh, I shouldn't be this way or they shouldn't be this way. What am I going to do? And, oh, this is going to last forever or I'm hopeless or whatever. Or distraction, you know, doing something. But now your present, present moment awareness, and then all the kind of paramitas start to be needed. You need to, you need to have goodwill towards this energy. You need to have a lot of endurance. Uh, have to have wisdom that this will change. It has arisen. It will change. Yeah? And that's the whole kind of intuitive background of the practice. All the, all the little bits of pieces that you've struggled with. And, and found insights, and then gotten strengths, and 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 uh, and, and sort of ha- have a kind of build-up of, of insights that that are different than when you started practice ten, ten years ago, aren't they? The way you, you you might deal with anger or fear now is different than ten years ago. Why? Because you've been practicing ten years. You've been practicing goodness. You've been trying to really put forth a, a, a good moral basis for your life and generosity. And, and then also you've watched and you've observed and you've tried stuff and you've tried too hard and it didn't work and it did work. And over time you have some level of understanding. And that can't, that can't be really quantified in a kind of analytical way, but it's there. You, know, you, you just know how to do stuff better because you've been doing it for a while. And, and that, that intuition, I think, that build-up of, of, of factors, not just intuitions, but emotional character, patience, the ability to endure, having distance, uh, allowing, all these different things, are parts of what I, what I would consider the training of the heart. Yeah? They're, not, they're not just analytical pieces which you understand in, intellectually, but they're things you do. Compassion is something you do. Endurance is something you do. Um, bringing up with mindfulness a, a perception of change, something you do, not just believe in. If you believe in change, that's not really the practice, it's just the belief. But actually bringing up, you know, so you have some really threatening material coming up through the emotional body and, and, and you know, feeling really threatened by it. What am I going to do with it? Oh, this will change. And that's a doing, isn't it? That's a perception which you have to make conscious and then apply to this very threatening situation. So you do anicca, you know, just believe in it. You do anatta. How do you do anatta? How do you do anatta? How do you do not personal? You don't run into thoughts. Right? The thoughts are, oh, this is terrible, I'm hopeless, or I'm never going to forgive that person, or blah, 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 it goes on. And then, how do you do anatta? How do you do not self? Well, you look at it as an object. It angers this way. So the language of not-self, it's anger rather than I'm a terrible person for being angry, that's self. So you do anatta. Don't grasp it. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the Buddhist style of, of, of spiritual search or aspiration or whatever is very hands-on or very heart-on, whatever you want to say. It's, it's really, you have to you know, you have to right, employ all these different methods the Buddha gave us, the Buddha gave us, and teachers have given us, and apply it to these these very seemingly intractable sometimes uh, uh, contractions of the heart, the, the 
and and they're very important when they come out because those are the those are the areas that can really haunt you, haunt your consciousness, and you can't can't get free of them. So when they come up, each time they come up, you try to just you know, you know get a sense of how to do this, and then you fail. That's all right. But now you're 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 more and more willing to let them become conscious, let them be the way they are as dharma. So the most horrible, wretched thought of trying to murder all beings in the world is dharma. Don't do it. That's sila. But dharma, dharma of the way things are, is is it allows the whole spectrum of natural possibilities to arise and cease. Morality and uh, generosity and so on govern our social life. But if we, if, we, if we are so contracted around one polarity, aversion, fear, and we don't know how to keep the heart open to it, then it'll always haunt us. You know, we'll say, oh no, no, don't come, don't come, and we distract or blame. But when we constantly increase our capacity to, to feel these things, you know, what you're doing is you're making awareness itself to be a vessel of goodwill. Not goodwill in an interpersonal way, that happens too, but goodwill to all the flow of Dharma, to all the... Because being a human, we have... We can have really devilish uh, thoughts, and we can have really beatific thoughts, we can think beautiful, altruistic thoughts, we can be bloody-minded, and, and that's just part of being human. We can have animal impulses, and... and Strong sexual desires, strong fears, or we can be haunted like ghosts. And you know, the, the human uh, human consciousness has all these uh, variations. But of course, what's interesting is awareness, because awareness is not a mood. You know, it's not it's not a temperament. It's not a color. And the more you you intuit that awareness of change is really. Uh, a place of abiding that can endure everything, then they're no longer threatening. And when they're no longer th- these, these difficult things, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but these difficult things, when you have that confidence that this too is okay, then your mind has a lot of release. Even though they come up, because now you know, that's not who I am, it'll change. It might not be trivial, but you have this background confidence that I don't have to fix this. It's not a problem. I'm not a problem. And you live within moral boundaries. And so the freedom sometimes that we get from this practice is not necessarily not having these things, but not being intimidated by them. And then we get, and then as we are not intimidated by them, their energy just starts to really fall away. Falls away. This isn't through analysis. This isn't through thought. This is through awareness of change. We say there, there are three kind of factors which prevent this, this liberation of the heart, which prevent the attenuation or the lessening of greed, hatred, and delusion. And one of them is this, this, um, this attachment to cultural things, this attachment to who I should be and shouldn't be, uh, belief in rites and rituals, cultural attachments. The other is taking it personally, so that the narratives of, 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 of fear are different than fear itself. 
the storylines of me being a fearful person are different than fear itself. And you can see when, when that attachment to thought and the I, me and my making, when that is not engaged and you have pure fear, then the fear has a chance to cease, be attenuated, to fall away. And the third, and that's so we say personality view, uh, the sense of cultural attachments. And the third is, is thought itself, right? And doubt and, and, and just the endless thinking of the mind. Because to know, to know change, you don't have to think about it. You can, you can put in a thought, this is changing, but you're not analyzing, you're just knowing life. One is changing. So that's taking refuge in awareness of change rather than in thought. So one of the difficulties in the, the kind of liberation of the heart from these things, where the stuff really starts to end in your mind, is the endless analysis and mulling over and, and uh, what was that word this guy used? What when we talk, we read that thing about okay, the thinking, ruminating on rumination. <laughs> You just start ruminating. Just endless thinking. Right? And that's doubt and rumination and analysis and it never ends. And 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 that prevents that prevents the kind of release of these things. One of the things Ajahn Sumedho often said to us in the, in the early days, I suppose he still does, he says, you know, if you let things be, become fully conscious and you just be patient, then they can run their course and really be be liberated from the heart, they can cease. But if you're always just, they come up and then you try to fix them and you think about them and do this and do that, they never have a chance to really come up. Now, that doesn't mean I'm advocating indulging in them. And this is, this is the difficult thing of, of, about these things, because indulging in things is always ruminating. You know, like, like just to feel something, you're not going there, you're just allowing it to be. You're not just kind of getting caught up into it. And this is, this is really um, a difficult skill to develop. Otherwise the world would probably be a better place than it is. Um, very difficult, because it's so deluding. But these three things, which we call the three fetters, personality view, we can witness that. I can, I can see the difference between fear and the thoughts around fear. Belief in rites and rituals, that's actually very hard to see. So. I was just talking with Venerable Jagaro how, how you, you can kind of like, I came into the monastery and I started to pick up these rules. I was so afraid of breaking a rule. You know, oh gosh. And then I get really uptight if I you know, stepped on an ant or something like that. And, oh, oh God, what have I done? And then, but that's not what it's about. And so my cultural conditioning of perfection and idealism and who I should be really made a job of these rules. And then, you know, my teacher said, that's not what it's about. It's about just knowing what's going on. And so seeing the, 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 uh, the way my, my cultural conditioning demanded perfection or whatever was very important. When I saw that, then I said, well, that's an object too. That kind of cultural conditioning. So that's the second one. And each of us has it, each gender has it differently, each age group, you know, uh, different families. But that's, that's quite a, sometimes hard to detect because it seems like truth. And then the third one, this endless rumination, this endless mulling over and, and doubting and thinking. Whereas awareness is, is silent. Isn't it? Awareness is not, it's, you know, awareness of change is not a rumination of change. 
you're not doing a PhD. You wouldn't get a PhD with this, by the way. If you're not, you're not thinking about it. You're knowing change, which is silent. You're silent here. And so you can see how the endless, our, our culture, which is, is one of our cultural uh, hang-ups, I think, is analysis. Thinking through, where is it coming from? Blah, 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 blah. So some analysis might be helpful, but once you just know this is fear, anger, whatever, and you just begin to just abide in confidence, this will change, this will change, this will change, and getting that confidence going. And then the mind starts to release the stuff. It's arising is ugly. It's, yeah, like an Ajahn Smith says, like an emotional anima comes flushing through your brain. Oh, oh. but it's all right. It's not you. you know? So you have this kind of courage and, and, and confidence and trust that even this is okay. And to me, that's the ultimate goodwill that this belongs. To me, that's the kind of perfect combination of, of awareness and metta. You know? And I think they're very important. All right, so I'll leave that for you to ponder. <coughs> Andamayang Uda Uvada Tamakataya Sadhu Karang Dadamasi Sadhu Sadhu